We want Jesus to be our Lord. We want him to sit on the throne of our hearts. And that's what we're pursuing in this sermon series as we study the false gods in our lives. And many of these ideas were inspired by Kyle Eidelman in his book, uh, Gods at War. But we're doing this series because until we understand who's sitting on the throne of our hearts and we seek to replace those false gods with God himself, we won't experience a fullness of life. Instead, we're going to experience frustration. Last week, we mentioned that without realizing it, we can take the very good things that God has given us and we can turn them into false gods. And we don't even realize that they've replaced the Lord God on the throne of our hearts because they seem fine. They seem good. And most of them are actually good gifts from God. And so this process of replacing God could perhaps continue all throughout our lives without our awareness. For example, uh, maybe a young person has the God of an iPhone in their life. So practically speaking, it's the most important thing to them. And then later on in life, the God in their life becomes a car or a vehicle. Then maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Then maybe their career becomes their God or then their husband, or their wife, or then it might be the God of your house or the dwelling you live in. Then later it could be your children, could be the God of financial status, could be even the God of retirement. My point is that there are all kinds of options that we can constantly fill the throne of our hearts with that are different gods. John Calvin put it this way. He said, The human heart is a factory of idols. So until we identify those idols and we remove them from the throne of our hearts, we're going to miss out on the life that God wants us to live. But these idols have power, and so they can't simply be resisted. They need to be replaced. And so we replace these false gods with an affection for the one true God, and then they begin to lose their grip on our hearts. So for you and I, there's this choosing that must happen in our lives. And often in the church, we focus on the choice or the day that you came to know the Lord or your salvation. And that's good. But being a Christian is much more than one choice. It's a continual choosing. And the list of other things to worship is very long. But every day, you and I have this simple choice Will I worship the Lord or will I worship something else? Let's look in our Bibles today at Luke chapter 18. And in the next few minutes, we're going to study a man who faces this choice in a very direct and specific way. So we're going to read the entire passage, uh, Luke 18 verses 18 through 30. And then we're going to work through it a little bit at a time. It says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. 
Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Looking at this passage in Matthew as well as Luke, we find that there are three words in the Bible that describe this man. Rich, young, ruler. Two adjectives and a noun, all of which point to the fact that he was a successful person. And what God is going to do in this story, what Jesus is going to do, is put himself in direct competition with what this man loves so much. And he's going to say to the man, you choose. And in doing so, I think all of us will be challenged. This man was worshiping the gods of success. In Matthew's account, he points out that he was a young ruler. And in the Bible, that usually means 40 and under. So we're pretty confident that he was under 40 because he was a young ruler. We also read later that he had great wealth. So what do we know about him already? Well, I think we can guess that he is a person who is driven. We know that he's a person who wants to be at the top, who wants to succeed. Says in verse 18, a certain ruler, Greek word for ruler is basically a recognized official. He would have been recognized as a person of authority in the culture. And he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I think we've got to give him some credit for this question. Because if you have one question to ask Jesus, this would be the question. What must I do to live forever? But even the way he answers the question reveals the God that he worships. Because how does he phrase this question? What must I do? Those of us who struggle with the gods of success are continually wanting to be the source of our salvation. And the word he uses here for inherit could just as easily be translated as acquire or to earn. And this is one of the reasons that we're drawn to the gods of success, because they allow us to put our hope in our own accomplishments, to put hope in our own achievements, to think that we somehow can earn our salvation. So you and I can make succeeding, even spiritual success, a savior for us. And and Jesus doesn't seem... uh, necessary to those who are successful people because they say look at everything we've been able to accomplish and I think that's one of the reasons why the most successful people are often the hardest to reach with the good news or the gospel because in order for them to respond to Christ to become a follower of Jesus they have to take that God off the throne of their heart the God that sits on on the throne of their heart which is actually themselves And it's very hard to take yourself off the throne of your heart. 
And what I mean is, it's hard to admit weakness for all of us, really, but especially for a highly driven, successful person. That's why TV personality Bill Maher, for example, when he was talking about the crucifixion, uh, he said, I just don't get the thought of someone else cleansing me of my sins. It's ridiculous. I don't need anyone to cleanse me. I can cleanse myself. Really? I can earn it myself, he was saying. This is why when Warren Buffett donated 85% of his $44 million fortune to charity, he said, there are a lot of ways to get to heaven, but this is a pretty great way. Now, I don't agree with that, but what is he saying? He's saying, I can do it. I'm successful enough. I can earn it on my own. When the reality is that none of us can ever be good enough to earn or deserve our salvation. So this is very difficult because the only way to have victory over this God is to admit defeat. But it's this God, the God of success, that keeps you from admitting weakness. And so the battle for our hearts rage. It keeps raging. In verse 19, Jesus goes right to what this man's question is. Uh, He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Verse 20. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony, which means lying. Honor your father and mother. And in verse 21, here's how the man responds. Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. You've got to follow all of these commands. And the man says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. You see, Jesus tries to help him with the appropriate response. The man should have said, I'm not good. I haven't kept all those commands. I can't do it. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, oh yeah, I've done all those things since I was a boy. And what he's doing here is what many of us in the church can get caught up in if if we're not aware, especially for those of us who have grown up in the church. We can get caught up in this. So I'm saying that while success for you may not be something you feel too caught up in, you know, you're not worried about job titles, you're not worried about financial status, but it's very possible for you to make spiritual success a false god. Like the men in our text, when you keep all the religious rules, it makes it very difficult for you to see that, in fact, you're in need of a Savior. So you can make your religious rules, uh, keeping a functional Savior, where you say, look, I can be so spiritually successful that that's where my confidence is. That's where my security is found. This is my Savior. So maybe you keep all the rules. Maybe you're at church every time the doors are open. Although now the, the church doors aren't open, but you're turn, tuning into these videos every week, right? All the time. You read your Bible, you memorize the scripture, you pray, you fast. And you've even come up with your own set of rules. You don't watch movies or questionable music. And you don't just give 10% to the church, you give 20. Which would be great. But that that's what you do, because you want to feel sufficient in yourself. 
And you do this until somehow you've replaced Jesus as your security and as the source of your salvation. It happens really subtly. And so this man has great confidence in his spiritual success. He says, I've kept all these since I was a boy. In verse 22, Jesus takes aim at the primary God that sits on the throne of this man's heart. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. So as you hear this story, as you read it, I think it would be easy to understand the story as being about money. But this is not a story about money. This is a story about idolatry. The problem with this man is not that he had a lot of money. The problem is that the money had him. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So you may be rich, you may be poor. That's really not the issue. It's not about whether or not you have money. It's whether or not money has you. He's turned it into a false god. And the reason Jesus talks so much about money in scriptures is because money has for us, I believe, the most potential of any false god to become a substitute for God. Listen to what he says in Matthew 6, 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money in the Bible is consistently portrayed as God's chief competition. And so let me try to explain why. The things in our life that have the most ability, the most potential to become a false god, are the things that promise to do for us what only God can do. How do we do that when it comes to money? Well, one thing I think we think sometimes is that it will make us happy. We think that money has the power to satisfy our souls, and in doing so, we make it a God in our lives. And you hear many people say, all I want is to be happy. And then when you ask them how, it doesn't take long for them to start speaking in terms of dollars and cents. Eventually, money becomes the symbol for our happiness. So when we see money as something that has the ability to satisfy us, we're giving it a divine attribute. But we've seen over and over again, it doesn't satisfy. Money doesn't equal happiness. And yet we want to believe that it would satisfy. If only I had that car. Oh, if I could have a home like that, whatever, fill in the blank. But satisfaction is not something that you take off the rack or you order off the internet or you drive off the lot. And so today I'm telling you, please don't give money, wealth, and possessions. Don't give them a divine attribute. Don't believe that they have the power to do for us what only God can do. Another thing we say about money is, Money can make me significant. And when we talk about people's worth, we almost all often talk about their net worth. And that's when we start to determine someone's value by their valuables. And when we do that, 
we are again ascribing to money a divine attribute. You see, God wants to be the person who gives us significance. He wants to be the person that gives us worth, not money. Another thing we often think about money is that money will bring us security. It's a belief we have. And again, God wants to be our security. And so when we look to money for security, we're making that our God. We're giving it a divine attribute, saying, oh yes, you can make me secure. And whatever you put your security in is ultimately your God. And so most of us have come to believe that comfort and security is something that has a price tag, and that with enough money, we can be comfortable and we can find security. You know, if I just had enough money, then then I could have good health insurance. It wouldn't matter if I got sick and all the hospital bills would be paid for. If, if I just had money, I could... And on and on it goes. And all of a sudden, God doesn't become who we're dependent on for the provision of our lives. Are you seeing how this works? We ascribe to money the divine attributes. We make it a God. And we have a jealous God. Because when we're looking for, to money for security and significance and all these things, God says, no, I want to do that. I want to be your source of satisfaction. I want to be your source of significance. I want to be your source of security. And so today I want you to think about the questions we asked a few weeks ago when we were trying to identify what are the gods at war within us. And let me ask just a few Question number one, and these are in your notes if you're looking at your notes. What do you complain the most about? Remember that question. What do you complain the most about? You complain about your financial status, the car you drive, the house you live in? That could reveal a false god. Question two, what do you sacrifice your time for? Are you mostly giving your time to making money? What do you worry about? Are most of your worries and your fears revolving around finances? It's a good question. What do you dream of? What brings you the most joy? For many people, when they they dream of things, it's things that can be bought. And what about this question? What controls you? What controls you? I've met several people in my life that have told me that they really feel called by God to leave their job in the secular workplace and to be involved in full-time Christian service. And God doesn't call everybody to that, but I've had several people who have told me, I feel God calling me. And they, they feel like it's something that God wants them to do it, to do, but they haven't done it. And they haven't done it because money says that doesn't make sense. Money says, you can't afford to do that. So if God is saying, this is what you should do, and money is saying, you can't do that, what you decide to do reveals your God. Now, some of you might be getting overwhelmed with this. Believe me, I know how hard this is. I battled this beast in my own life, and I continue to do that. I do not want to bow to money. I want God to be our God. And and I know it can be difficult to determine exactly what God wants. I know that too. But at the end of the day, what is it that controls you? 
Because God wants to sit on the throne of your heart, and he wants that to himself. He doesn't want to share that with money. He just won't do it. And so if you're putting your work, your success, or your money ahead of God, then as we said last week, God will either cause a drought in that area, or he will let you have what you want so you discover the emptiness of it. So the problem with idolatry is that ultimately we're putting our trust in something other than Jesus. We look to other things for life. And I want you to know it's not a good trade. It's not a good trade. It's not the right choice. We find out in the end that it's empty. The world promises that if we just have it, we'll be secure or we'll be significant or we'll be satisfied. But in the end, there's nothing there. I was reading a story recently of Millard Fuller and his wife, Linda. And Millard tells about how he became a millionaire at the age of 29. He says at age 29, he had bought everything for his wife that she could possibly want. But one day, he came home from work to find a note announcing that she had left him. Well, he went after her, and he catches up to her on a Saturday night in a hotel in New York City. And the two of them stay up talking into the wee hours of the morning, and she just expresses to him that the things that they have given their lives to, the things that our society says are so satisfying, have left her cold. And she feels her heart is empty. Her spirit is burned out. She says she feels dead inside and she just wants to live again. And so the two of them knelt beside their bed in that hotel room and Millard and Linda decided at that moment to sell everything they had and commit the rest of their lives to serving poor people. Well, the next day was Sunday. They found a nearby church. They went to worship and they wanted to thank God for this new beginning in their life. And they shared with the minister their decision. And the minister responded by saying, you know, this kind of radical decision isn't really necessary. But Millard said, he told us it wasn't necessary to give up everything, but he just didn't understand. We weren't giving up money and the things that money could buy. We were giving up. We were giving up. And Millard and Linda started an organization you might be familiar with, Habitat for Humanity. Now, it's tempting in teaching this passage from Luke 18 to say that Jesus, when he speaks to the rich young ruler, he says, sell everything you have, that he didn't really mean it. He was just speaking metaphorically here. But if you study it, I believe no. For this man, Jesus meant it because wealth was his God. And I wonder about this man. Did the rich young ruler just become a richer, older ruler? Or did he at some point realize what he should truly give his life to? We don't know. But one of the strangest things I think you'll read in the Bible is in verse 23. It says, He became very sad because he was very wealthy. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's strange to read a sentence like that. He was sad because he wanted both God and money. 
He did not want to have to choose. And yet that was the only invitation that Jesus offered. It's all or nothing. I'm either Lord of all or not at all. That was his invitation. And so the man walked away sad. And for you and I, the invitation from Jesus has not changed. It's still the invitation. Our God may not be money. It might be something else, but it's the same invitation. And so today I want to ask you, will you make God the Lord of your life? Will you fight this battle? Will you give him not just parts of it, but your entire life and let him have the throne on the seat of your heart? You're going to respond to this message today. But how you respond is up to you. But I want to beg you to just listen to Jesus' story and don't walk away sad. Jesus has patiently waited for that position of glory in your life. Please give it to him.